Good evening. We're continuing the Talmud series. Last week, uh, we ended with uh, the story of Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua that went on a boat for months. And, uh, you know, and once every seven years that there's a star who confused the sailor. And Rabbi Yoshua brought a, a salta, a pot, a bread that made from uh, samolina. And Rabban Gamliel brought bread that is made from regular flour. So Rabban Gamliel ran out of bread because his bread became hard. And Rabbi Yoshua had plenty of bread and the bread was still fresh because bread that make from samolina can stay for months. So he told him, how did you know? You all, whenever we go on a journey, you always bring regular bread. How did you know? What, you see the future? You're a prophet, what is this? Even a prophet don't see anything. Prophets see once in a while what God say to, say to him. So he said to him, no, once every seven years, there's a star who comes and confuses the sailors because they go by the stars and all of a sudden they see different stars so they get confused. And today, in, in the scientists say that we're talking about uh, the Halley. Halley, that's the name of the stars. Once every seven years he comes. That's it. So in, in my lecture, Torah and Science 2, I actually bought a whole slide about it with some sources about say, NASA and, and the way the stars appear every 70 years. If I'm not mistaken, it, a few years ago it appeared. A few years ago, that star came. They, they made a big deal about it. Okay, that's where we ended up last week. Today, we are speaking about uh, a lot of mystical things and advice for life, as I said last time. And the Gemara say, five things make a person forget what he learns. Imagine a person puts so many hours every week in, in his learning, and then in the end, he doesn't remember anything. It's a shame, you know? It's like putting water in a bucket that is a little hole there. Come a week later, there's nothing there, right? So what are the things that makes a person forget? One, if you eat food that the mouse ate from it. Now, don't look for logic, please. Don't ask me how come, why. This is all secrets of God. I don't know why. I don't know why. Not everything we know why. Nobody claims we know all the secrets of God. But we're lucky. We're lucky. Please put all the phones down. I don't want rings. So uh, we're lucky that we know some of the things that whatever God told us, we know. Okay, so it says like this. Five things makes a person forget his learning. One is eating from what the mouse ate. Usually they, the mice, they come to the dough. If you put dough and you go away, they come underneath and they start biting from the dough. Then you come, you see little holes there that they were eating. And you say, you know what? For instance, they walk in a bakery. They don't care. They put it, they go like this again and they bake from it. Nobody knows. You go, you eat from that place because restaurants, bakeries always have mice, always. They try to fight with that. Uh, it's like trying to get the fish out of the water. It's not so simple, you know? They know where to go. And the uh, Gemara says in a different place that the mice are wicked. Why are they wicked? From their point of view, they're righteous. From our point of view, they're wicked. Why are they wicked? If one mouse found food in your closet or in your house or in your restaurant, whatever you have, he doesn't eat alone. He calls Hundreds, all his friends from all over, they're coming from their holes. I always say, 
we are worse than the mice. If a person found a treasure, a well that gives him oil, does he run to tell all his friends, come, come, take free oil? He makes sure everything he can that nobody will know that he has a place that he gets his oil for free. Everything, puts guard there, cover it, put trees on, who knows what, makes a tunnel that he can hide. <laughs> Over here, they come, come eat, there's a lot. So they, they don't leave you alone, they bring their own, the entire neighborhood. So the Gemara says, rish ininu, rishi rasha, wicked, have no mercy. One, he found your, the source of food, he brings everyone. So if you eat from something that the cat ate, not only the mouse, the cat. Cats also come, they lick, they put the cheese, something. They come, they lick, they eat. Someone who eats hearts of animals, not chickens. Hearts of animals, the hearts. The hearts of the animals makes him forget what he learns. Someone who likes to eat lots of olives. Uh, once in a while, eat an olive, fine. He eat a lot of olives. It makes him forget. Aleph calls to forget things. So what's the solution? I know some of you say, oh, you destroyed me now. I cannot live without Aleph. So, you know, this kind, green, purple, black. How can we give up? The answer is you put them in olive oil. Olive oil, when you eat, improve the memory. Olives that you eat hurt the memory. So how you balance it? <laughs> you put them together and that's it. And plus I'll tell you another secret from Kabbalah. You have to say, El Elokim Mats Pats Gimatria Zait. But the real name of Hashem, when you eat. Why? It's a numeric value of the, of the name of God, Mats Pats. You say El Elokim Mats Pats, that's numeric value, Zait. 417, that's verse that I say, El Elohim Mats Pats. Secrets, don't ask me what it is. And that's, a, that's eliminate the power of the olives to make you forget. You know, so you watch the video, it's right in the first minute of the lecture, it'll be easy to find that's gula. Then someone who drinks water that is left from someone's washing his hand. Nobody does it today. But in the old days, it was very hard to have water. So if you're an old man and there's nobody there, your son went away, you cannot go now all the way to the lake to bring water. You don't have water. So while you have a little water left, so you rinse your, mouth, your hands with this. The hands are clean, but you, 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 you rinse them anyway, and now you drink, because well, what are you going to do? Then what happens is that it makes you forget. Okay? There are many other things that makes people forget. I'm just reading to you what the Gemara say. Someone who rinses his legs one on top of the other, put one leg on top of the other and spill water. Today it's easy, we have showers, you don't have to put one on top, but in the old days they wanted to save water. So they put, like you put two hands together and someone spill, so it covers both hands, right? It's like when you go to the bathrooms today, they try to save on papers. So they have this hair blower. If you put the hands like this open, you're missing the power of the heat. But if you put both of them like this, it dries much faster, right? Same thing with the water. If you put both water and someone rinse, it rin with less amount of water, you rinse both hands. But if you do it for the legs, it makes you forget your Torah.
someone who put things under his head when he goes to sleep. Tools, kelim, all kinds of things he puts under himself. Pillow, it's fine. If you hide things, you don't have pillows, so you put something else instead. You know? And there are more things. For instance, now up to now I read you from the Gemara. Now I give you a few extra that I remember from the top of my head. If you wear two pieces of clothes together, or if you take them out together, if you wear something upside down, clothes upside down, like T-shirts under the jacket, whatever, yes, ah, who cares, upside down. It makes you forget. You go under a bridge when there's no water in the, in the Chevy, Chevy, Levy, Levy, what you call it? Levy, the Levy, there's a Levy and there's a bridge and there's no water and you cross it under the bridge. You go under a camel, camel is standing and you go from one side to another. You know, there's a list of things that is actually making, okay, now this one is already from the Gemara. You know what, maybe I should wait. It's in the end of this page. We'll do it in the right order. Okay, so let's move on. Five things are good for the learning of the Torah. Up to now, the first five was bad. Now it's good. What's good? Someone who eats bread crunchy, burned, almost burned completely, very dark. Now, now the baker is here, have problems now. Make it extra toasted. What happened? Everyone wasn't toasted. <laughs> That's how it is. Maybe I should skip it now. Poor people have to, to, to bake double. Anyway, so. Does it need to be No, no, nothing to do with kazai. If you eat bread, pechamin, pet pechamin, but really the truth is not really. No, let's interpret it correctly. Bread that is baked on charcoals, like they have, like the ovens in the old days, nobody, died. I don't think they bake like this anymore. But they have charcoals, like you barbecue, the real pieces of charcoals, like the wood, it's cut, and they put the bread and they bake it on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I don't think it applies so much, it's not so relevant. Uh, someone who eats an egg, Megulgelet without salt. Egg that rolled. They have a way to roll the eggs. I guess it's rolled either in hot water or in the oven. Slowly, slowly, they put it like in a tilt. And little by little, it roll, and that's how it bakes in, in hot. But they don't put salt on it, so it's very good for the learning. Someone who drinks wine. Wine ubesamim. Someone who, who smells besamim, smells good, uh, like adasim, good smells, like good flowers. It improves the memory of the learning. Someone who eats olive oil, olive oil. Someone who drink water that left from the dough. When you put dough, right? So some, you didn't use the whole water, you put some water. You make, you see, you need a little more, you need a little more, that's it. At one point the dough is perfect, now there's some water left, right? So you take it, you pour it in a cup and drink it. What's the problem? It's clean water. Yeah, but since you used it for the bread and there's some leftover, you drink it. Shiureisa. Someone who put the food with his hand in the salt, like the bread in the salt, that the salt touched the fingers, and then he eats. So that's already uh, good for the learning. And, and 
The Gemara says, if a person eats a lot of olives, it can make him forget Torah that he learns in 70 years. But if he eats olive oil, it can return back all the Torah that he, that he forgot in the, of seven years of learning. Okay? So, ten things are difficult for the learning of the Torah. Kashim la Talmud. Ten things are difficult for the learning. Someone who, work, who go, walks under the camel, as I said before, and even under the, what do you call the saddle that you put on a horse, on the camel, there's a special saddle. So even if they hang it somewhere and you go under it, also bad for the learning of the Torah that you learn. Someone who walks in between two camels, two camels standing somewhere and you walk in between. What's the connection to uh, remember your Torah or not? I have no idea, but this is what the Gemara says. Uh, someone who walks between two women. So what happens if the only way to walk is two women standing, one here and one a little bit far, and now what are you going to do? Every time you see two women, you're going to call her, excuse me, can you come to this side, because I want to go. It could be in her house. She doesn't understand. She thinks you're crazy. So what's the solution? You hold something in your hand and walk. Hold anything. You hold book, something, and you walk in between. Better not to walk, but if you have no choice, you hold something and you go. Woman that walks between two men. There's no prejudice here. <laughs> men between two women, women between two men. Yeah. Someone who walks over a dead body of an animal that smells very bad. Which means if the animal just died, there's no smell yet. Died a minute ago, there's no smell. If you come three, four, five hours later and it smells and you go over it, it's not good. Someone who walks under a bridge that water is not floating under for the last 40 days. In Israel, it's very common. In America, you have rain every two, three, four, five days. One week, you don't have rain. Already, it's the end of the world here. But in Israel, you can have six, seven months, no rain. Then it's these, these uh, uh, rivers are dry. Dry. It's called Nachal Achzav. There's Nachal Etan, Nachal Achzav. Nachal Etan means strong, all the time water flowing. Nachal Achzav means Achzav comes from Meuchzav, Meachzev, disappointing. Whenever you come, there's no water. Okay, so if 40 days water are not flowing there, right, what happened? If you walk there, then it makes you forget the Torah that you learned. Feel free, have a chair, very good. Then someone who eats bread that it's half dough, that it's not completely baked. It's very common. Sometimes they in a rush in a pizza store. They take it half raw. It's not uh, right away, especially Motzei Pesach, Pesach ending. 500 people stand online. They never saw a pizza for eight days. They're going crazy. You know, it's a really, really Shlombite issue. You know, so they have to take as many as they can. So they give it to you half raw. And people cannot wait, they eat it, and you feel even the dough, then it's not good. Or any kind of bread that sometimes if it's not rice good, the yeast, or it's not, it wasn't hot enough, was cold, so the dough is not rising. So when you put it in the oven, the inside of the bread or the challah, you can feel it that it's like a dough, it's like eating dough. Then something like this, affecting the learning of the Torah that you learn, and you may forget what you learn. Someone who eats 
would drink from Amat Maim, a pad of the water, right? The water takes, they make special pads. Like today we have pipes. So it's really not relevant. But in the old days, if they wanted to bring water from the lake into the neighborhood, they have to dig a special line. And the water comes all the way to the neighborhood instead of going 500 times a day. So it brings the water all the way to your area, to a pool, and you come take water from there, right? So if you go directly drinking from the line when the water is floating, it's already affecting the, the ability to remember the Torah you learn. Someone who walks in between the graves in a cemetery. Cemetery in general is completely not recommended to ever go there, ever. There, are, there is some good there. Sometimes you go to a grave of a righteous person, you pray, you say, oh, in the merit of this uh, tzaddik, that my prayer will go express to Hashem. It's good, of course. But everything that is involved with the cemetery, the impurity, the, the things that I say, especially even for women, is even worse to go into the cemetery. And then if a person, if, so if a person's father died, they don't even let him go into the cemetery on the day of the funeral. That's how bad it is. And I spoke about it in different lectures. So cemetery, you have to do everything you can to avoid going there. The more, the more that uh, you go there, the worse it is. Really, that's it. And many people don't really know it, and they keep yeah, going into. I just said many people don't hold by these mystical things. They just go. They say it's better for me to go and pray in a grave of the tzaddik. But they don't know that going into the cemetery and going in between the graves affecting the memory, affecting the memory and the Torah that you learn. So uh, I said, every Jew can pray to Hashem no matter where he is, whether he's by the grave, whether he's not. He doesn't have to go all the way to the grave to pray there that Hashem is going to hear him better. If you want the merit of the righteous person to take your prayer to Hashem, you can mention him. For the schut of the Baba Sali, for the merit of this tzaddik, for the merit of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, for the merit of the Rambam, please, please, that's it. You, you can mention it. You don't have to go all the way to his grave. But, you know. This whole culture of going to graves is, in, is very close. It's on the border of being an idol's worshiper, in a way, because people are putting too much weight on it. The actual thing is to pray to Hashem. It doesn't really matter where. You come to the, to the synagogue, it's better, the house of God. You cannot come, you do it in your home, it's also good. You do it in your car, it's also good. You do it by the field, it's also good. You don't have to go all the way to the grave to do it over there. Especially when I read to you from the Gemara in Masechet Horayot, and the Gemara say, over, well, the truth is, the truth is, let me just clarify one thing. Mainly what the Gemara speaks is for ladies. For ladies, is much more, much worse than for a man. But still, a man that goes to a cemetery, he goes in between the graves, he has to go, he has to stand next to graves that are impure, impurifying. It's tumat met. Now you may say, but we all impure anyway. We, but there's no point of adding more impurity to you, even if you're impure. To add more and more impurity is also not good. So, bottom line, if the cemetery is five, two, five, five minutes walk from your home and you want to go to the grave of the tzaddik, fine. If you have to go all the way, fly, and spend a week on your time just because you wanted to go and pray by the grave of a tzaddik, it's a... Uh, you lose more than you gain. That's really the truth. Now we have another issue here. 
Every Jew who lives in Israel and he goes to overseas to a grave of a righteous person is very, very foolish. Very foolish. Mamash very foolish. What is it like? A person that his father offered him a job in his own store to pay him a thousand dollars a day and he decide to drive every day three hours to make fifty dollars a day. His father said to him, you fool, I gave you the store, you run the business, you be like a king here, you make a thousand dollars a day. You go all the way three hours to make fifty dollars like a, like a simple worker. This is the parable, what's, that's the mashal, what's the nimshal? You live in Eretz Israel, you have hundreds of the biggest rabbis who ever lived in history. Hundreds of hundreds, Rabbi Shimon Baruch all the Tanaim, Rabbi Akiva, the Rambam, the Ramchal, the Ari Kadosh. Name one, the biggest in the history. All of them, that everything we know came from them. So we leave them and we go all the way to a grave of a person who lived 100 or 200 years ago. That's really ridiculous. As holy as it may be, doesn't make sense. You, have, you go to the cemetery in Tzfat, every grave is a legend. Every grave, Hana and her seven sons. Hana, Hana from the story in the Tanakh. Hana and the seven sons, right there. The prophet right next to Hana. The Ari Kadosh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, Rabbi El Kabetz. Maybe you have about 50 big tzaddikim over there in one minute walk. Where are you going to get something like this in the world? What justification you have to go anywhere? Even for if you, what's the point here? Doesn't make sense. But that's the world that we live in. Sometimes people don't pay enough attention. Uh, sometimes a person means well, he has good intention, but in the end, he, he loses more than he gains. And that's a very common problem. So then, uh, so, someone who looks at the face of a dead body, looking at the face, look for a second, because you have to identify him, fine. But to stare on a dead body and stare in his face, and Dafka in his face, not the rest of the body, on the face, staring on the face of a dead person is damaging the Torah that you learn. Someone who reads the writing on the grave, but only if the writing comes out or goes in deeply, if it's engraved deeply or comes out, if it's just like ink that they print on it, it's fine. But if it's really coming out, mainly coming out, that like, like, they, like they actually did it either with a machine or manually, whatever, and the letters are coming out, then it's affecting the learning that the, to that the person had. Uh, the Gemara continue. We have, in the time of Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel was the president. And he's from the descendants of King David. He's like 13, I mean, 1,300 years after the Torah was given, he was the president. So 2,000 years, be, I mean, 1,000 years before him, his grand-grandfather was King David. So he comes from his family. Rabbi Meir, the famous Rabbi Meir that we hear his name so many times, the, the charity of Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir Elohad, Rabbi Meir Aneni. Rabbi Meir was a very big chacham. He didn't have an official title. But everybody knows. You want to ask a question, he's the authority. He knows everything. But he didn't have an official job. He wasn't like the chief rabbi of the Beidin or the chief rabbi of the town. It was just somebody that everybody knows. Anything you want, you go to him. Rabbi Nathan, 
was also a very big chacham, but he was the Av Bedin, the head of the Jewish court. Av Bedin, very big position. One time, Rashbag, he came to the yeshiva, they're all sitting in yeshiva and learning, he comes and he learns Torah. When Rashbag go in, this is a very interesting mara and, and uh, a little bit strange and a little bit hard to understand, but this is, an, uh, this is history. We're now talking about history of something in the Talmud here. So when Rashbag comes, since he's the president of Israel, everyone in the yeshiva rise. You have 500 people sitting on the tables and learning. When he walks in, everyone rise. And he goes all the way and he sits on the stage. He has a special table with his chair. He stands on like a little stage. Once he sits on his chair, everyone sit down. Fine. Then, one, you know, one time, the, the Gemara brings the story here now. When uh, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Natan, which they're also very big chachamim, they, can, they come in, also everyone rise. The entire yeshiva rise. So the president say, if everyone rise for someone who doesn't have a title, and someone rise for someone who is the president of Israel, and someone that is the head of all the courts, it makes the, the, the respect that the president and the head of the courts deserve worthless. Because tomorrow, every chacham comes, everyone rise. So who, are, who am I? I'm the president. We have to make some laws here for the future generation that they know. It goes by who is bigger than who. The president is the top authority. He's more important than other people. You understand? So he made a decree that when they come in, when they come in, when Rabbi Meir goes in, the, the first row, not everyone, everyone stay to learn. Only the first row rise. After he, the, after he walks, the ones behind him sit. After he walks, as soon as he passes you, you sit. When Rabbi Natan comes, he's in charge of the court, so he walks. The first row that close to the aisle are rising, and they wait until he go on the stage and sit, and then they sit. But the rest of the yeshiva don't have to rise. So what happened now? Now there is a war, spiritual war, inside the yeshiva. People get offended. <laughs> Today, it's a much more sensitive generation. Today, people get offended for nonsense, for ego issues, for, for much for stupidity. In the old days, people really cared. They were zealous to Hashem. The honor of the Torah has to be done in a proper way. It's nothing personal. Nobody cares personal now. Some of the students of Rabbi Meir and the students of Rabbi Natan, it, got, it was burning in their heart that now their rabbi received less respect. Even though he's not the president, but he's just as big as the president knowing Torah. Why should it's an argument if he deserves enough respect like the president or not? So they started to get angry that every time they got, nobody, nobody gets up for them. So the, the rabbi, Rabban Gamliel, they say, you know what? We will show everyone that we know Torah even more than him. So what did they do? There is one Gemara, it's called Masechet Ukatsin. Ukatsin, nobody learns it. It's very difficult. It's not so relevant. So people, you know, say they prefer to learn things that is more urgent, that you need for every day. So they went and learned it very, very good. They learned it and learned it until they know it by heart. Why? Because they want to come one day to the yeshiva and start asking him a lot of questions from this masechet, show that he doesn't know anything. 
because this is something nobody really memorized. And then say, you see, every question we ask him, he doesn't know. And we, you know, so what happened is, he, he can, one of the students heard their plans that they're learning it for that to prove that he's not so big in the Torah. So he went by his window all night and he's reading Masechet Ukatzin. One o'clock at night, he's trying to sleep. This kid standing, this student, is learning Masechet Ukatzin. Now, this Chachamim knew nothing happened for no reason. When in my whole life somebody came by my window to disturb me, not to let me sleep at one, two, three o'clock at night, so loud like this by my window. He's trying to tell me something. Let me listen. All night he was learning with this boy. The boy was reading and he's listening everything. The next day the car comes in. So Rabbi, we have questions to ask you. They started to shoot one after the other and he gives them all the answers by heart. Everyone was shocked, wow. Even this he knows? <laughs> Even this he knows? So he told them, but I know that it was a, a, a plan here. He wanted to embarrass me in front of everyone. Therefore, I make a decree, you cannot enter the yeshiva anymore. Out. Two biggest chachamim, think about it. Top three rabbis in the world, the president, the head of the courts, and top chacham, he throw both of them out. You want to learn Torah, you stand by the window. You don't come in. So like this, for a few days, he teach in a yeshiva, and they stand by the window. But you know, I want to tell you something. I know what you're thinking. I actually hesitated if to even say the story or to skip it or not. After thinking about it, I came with a conclusion, it's better to say it than not to say it. And I tell you why. When you hear it for the first time, you're thinking what kind of people they are. Even we are not like this. It's like, like kindergarten. Who's going to rise for me? Who's not going to rise? If this is not ego, what is it? Then I'm going to prove to you that it's nothing to do with ego. It's only love, pure love to Hashem and to the Torah. Because when he threw them out of the yeshiva, they stand by the window to continue to learn Torah from him, not to miss one lecture from his mouth. Today you say one word that people in the, in the crowd don't like, they put an X on you. Oh, this rabbi, Rabbi Mizrahi, forget about it. I don't want to hear from him anymore. Why? He say, Mechalel Shabbat is like a goy, I'm done with him. <laughs> well, that's what the Torah says. I don't care. I hear this, it's not for me. <laughs> no more. I deleted it from my computer. I hear it a lot. Yeah, I, I gave a lecture intermarriage 10 days ago, two weeks ago. You know what they did to me? My blood is floating in the streets of Brooklyn. What? Because I read what the Torah have to say about intermarriage. One stupid girl that started to write all kinds of things in the internet, but Baruch Hashem, Hashem runs his way. People attacked her in the end. She, went, she was trying to ruin the lecture last night in Brooklyn. But it was a very big event. The place was full. It was very successful. And, uh, even it was so good that last night, an hour after the lecture, was already on the website. <laughs> and already people started to watch it. Today, before I even opened my eyes, already more than a thousand people saw it in 10 hours. So that's good, Baruch Hashem. But what happened is, if you go, I, I urge you, I want everyone to see how cruel are people. I want everyone to see. Please go to the lecture, intermarriage, an hour and 35 minutes. It's Mamash, the last five minutes of the lecture. 
she asking me question, I want you to see how nice and polite I was to her. Extremely polite, extremely nice. I answer all her questions in a beautiful way. No anger, nothing like this. You should see. I want you to see in your own eyes. If you show me, Jewish. yeah, Jewish girl. You should, if, you, if you see one word that I say that that is not in the right place, I tell you, I give you a prize. And she was trying, complaining all kinds of things out of nowhere. So imagine if you throw her out of the lecture, what she would do. She'd bring the police to burn the shul or something, you know? Maybe she pays some Nazi from the KKK to burn the shul tomorrow because you have to speak there. It's people out of their mind. But over here, it's a big insult. The rabbi throw you out of the yeshiva? You know what it is? Your student standing inside, they see you standing by the, by the door, and it doesn't bother them. In one minute, they could open their own yeshiva, half of the students will come and finish. They stand by the window to learn. And when they want to ask a question, he puts them on a ban. They cannot ask questions. So they write the question on a piece of paper, the Gemara says, and throw it to one of the students, they catch it, you know, like we make airplanes. <laughs> Maybe that's where it came from. Somebody catch it. Rabbi, what's this and this and that? And then after a few weeks, the people say, Rabbi, maybe you think again about your decree. The Torah is standing in the street, and we are sitting inside the, the yeshiva. Where is the respect for the Torah? Maybe you reconsider your decree. And he, he could have said, no, end of story. So OK, the Torah can come back into the yeshiva, but I make a decree. And what's the decree? The decree is like this. Every time Rabbi Meir says something, you're not allowed to say it with his name. You only write it anonymously in a Talmud. And when Rabbi Natan says something, you write, Yesh Omrim. There is someone who says, but you don't mention his name. Until today, today, 2,000 years later, every yeshiva in the world you go, you read the Gemara, until today, everyone knows it. Why? Every time the Mishnah says some halacha, some law, without a name, and the Gemara doesn't know who say it, the Gemara now probably it's Rabbi Meir, because there's no name. It became one of the most important things and famous things in the Talmud that if you don't know who say it, it's either Rabbi Meir or Rabbi Natan. That's it. It stays like this. It's already a rule in the Talmud. You, the, the Gemara investigate. No, it cannot be Rabbi Meir, because over there it says the opposite. The, every time the Gemara says who say it, they have to make an investigation who say it. First option, it's probably Rabbi Meir. Why? Because it's anonymously. Nobody ever say their names after that. After he made that decree, people can say, ah, who cares about his decree now? It was 50 years ago. He passed away already. Now I want to say Dvar Torah. I'm not going to say I heard it from Rabbi Meir. Just because he said, that's what it is. Nobody say their names. And it stays in the Talmud without mentioning it in the name of Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Natan. So even when a person gets offended, it depends why. You get offended for your ego, it's a big sin. You get offended because someone didn't give you enough respect, it's a big sin. You get angry because they put you to sit in not such a great place, it's not good. Someone didn't answer your question. You want to interfere with the, with the words of the speaker, and he doesn't let you ask your question, and you get angry. The problem is you. 
But over here, you fight for the honor of the Torah, it's different. Hashem knows what's in your heart. Hashem knows what's bothering you. Bother you your personal ego, which is 99% of the cases, or really the honor of the Torah. If the honor of the Torah bothers you, not only it's not a sin, it's a big thing. Why? Because Hashem said, look, look how much this guy loves the Torah. Two other Chachamim are out, and it's not because of him, it's nothing personal. He loves it very much, he fights for them, he does whatever it needs to until they come back into the yeshiva. The Gemara says, The Torah says, The father-in-law of Moshe, of Moses, he heard a rumor, and he came. What rumor he came? There was no CNN, no Facebook, no internet, no radio, no television, no New York Times, none of these things. He lived in one place in Midian, and they are in a different place. There's no communication. Even to throw a bottle with a note in the ocean that maybe will take it to Europe <laughs> with the waves, whatever, you're in the middle of the desert. There's no way. What, how are you going to send the message? The Gemara asks, what did he hear that it affected him so much that he left his position as the head of the church, the, the idols, the head of all the idols worshipping? Remember, he was the Pope of that generation, even though there's no Christianity yet, 1,300 years before, but the concept is the same concept. They are worshipping the idol, and he was worshipping all the idols, an expert in every idol worshippers. He had seminars to teach people how to worship different idols. This is the ceremony here, this is the ceremony over there. And he became the father-in-law of Moses, of Moshe Rabbeinu. <laughs> how can it be? Imagine now the Pope, he comes to Yerushalayim, he brings his daughter with him, to the biggest rabbi in the world. Rabbi, let's make a shiduch, l'chaim, brings flower, wine, l'chaim, they stand in a wedding, the Pope right here, and the chief rabbi over there, and they dance together l'chaim. Something like this is possible? I said, if Rabbi Akiva lived in this generation, no yeshiva in the world would accept him. We would lose Rabbi Akiva, the greatest Jew ever lived. Why? Imagine now you see any yeshiva you be, Somebody show up 40 years old, he doesn't know alphabet. Rabbi, I came to get accepted to your yeshiva. He said, okay, let's test you. Bring the Gemara. He said, no, no, Rabbi, don't start Gemara. Can you show me it? Can somebody teach me alphabet? I don't know anything. I don't know how to read. 40 years old. Until now, I was cleaning horses, brushing their hair, you know, fixing the ears. That was my job, checking their teeth, like they check the teeth of Saddam Hussein with the flashlight, <laughs> and they call him open. <laughs> I have this picture, doesn't come out of my head. Our person is worth $40 billion. Two weeks ago, I sit in a palace using a gold faucet and a gold jacuzzi and servants and this and 50 wives he has. All of a sudden, I found him in a hall with a beard and curly hair, and they say, open your mouth, and with a flashlight, they check the camels, you know? For the Biden, they check their gums, infection, heart attacks. This is, the, 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 this is what the Tehillim say, the proud, they ended up, Hashem is drowning them in the ground. So, wow, how Itro became what he became? The answer is, he heard the miracles, the whole world heard the miracles that Hashem did to the nation of Israel in a war against Amalek. 
a good rumor spread very fast, don't it? even without communication. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu picks his head, the nation of Israel winning, not one soldier died. This Amalek, which was a trained army waiting for them, surprising them on the way, attacking a nation with children and old people, they don't have weapons. They just came out of Egypt on the way to the promised land. What's the chance the Jews will win? You remember, I mean, they didn't have that much time to train, you know? So everyone was shocked. How can it be that they won in such a way? No casualties, nothing. This Amalek is destroyed. What's going on here? He was very curious how it happens. Of course, when you start talking, next thing he heard that they were in Egypt and the 10 plagues and Pharaoh, the biggest empire in the world with Egypt, which was, uh, was like, like today United States in the world, that was Egypt at that time, even much more powerful, Egypt. Remember, Egypt became the wealthiest country. It, it, was, it, it was always wealthy, but when Yosef became the treasurer, he was in charge of the money, in seven years that there was wealth, he knew that there's coming seven years of starvation. So he stored everything in storages. And when there's nothing left in the world, no bread to eat, everyone went to Egypt to buy. Now, a piece of bread that you buy for $2 here, imagine if there's no place in the world that you can get bread only here. Imagine someone had hundreds of storages full from top to the ceiling, from the bottom to the ceiling, Ton, hundreds of tons of wheat, flour, whatever, nobody has. Can charge any amount you want. People sold their homes, their horses, their gold, everything, just to eat, not to die. And all the wealth of the world went to Pharaoh, thanks to the Jewish brain. People today in Wall Street complain against the Jews. The Jews destroyed the economy, the Jews controlled the economy. Such an ungrateful people. You should know one thing. This person, Ben Bernanke, which is an Orthodox Jew, Shomer Shabbat, should know that. Shabbat, he has a yarmulke, a hat, goes to the shul, Orthodox Jew. If he wasn't here, here in America, it would be already thousands of people dead every day on the street in riots. Only one mistake he did, that it took him a few months to realize how serious is the situation. But from the moment that he realized that this country is in a point of being destroyed mentally, physically, financially completely, everything he did was a genius act. Put billions of dollars in the market, all the lies to the media that the economy is improving. Without him, I'm telling you, people would slaughter one each other here on the street. He saved this country with his brilliant mind. I started to see now more and more they becoming the, the people in the financial district, they, began, they now, after the understanding the picture, many of them started to say, without him, who knows where we be? And what did they say over there in Wall Street? <laughs> the Jews destroyed the economy. If it wasn't him, who knows where this country would be? You understand? And, and even if you have 1% of the people in the, in the industry is Jewish people, what about all the other 90%, all the, the controller, the president of the biggest companies? What, what about them? If, if you want to blame someone, blame anyone, everyone. Why you blame only 1%, 5%, whatever it is? But the point is, it's nothing to do with this. It's only the genes, the genes, the antisemitism. When the Jews are poor, they hate them. When they're rich, they hate them. When they, 
powerful, they hate them. When they're weak, they hate them. When they're slave, they hate them. When they're in the gas chambers, they hate them. No matter what the case is, even the Jews pretend that they're goyim, they take the yamaka, change their name to goy names, they still hate them. No matter what, it never stopped. Why? Because Hashem made it like this. Trying to protect us, Hashem makes everybody hates us. If everyone would love us, there would not be one Jew in the world today. The only reason we still have a few million Jews left in the world is because many of them think, what's going to happen? I married this Christine. She's not an anti-Semite. She's nice. She respects me. We went to college together. She helped me with my homework. You know, no problem. I was copying from her test, getting A on my test. Everything is fine. We fell, fell together, fell in love. <laughs> and now, one day I'm going to go, who knows who her parents is? Could be Germans, could be Nazi background, can be KKK. What do I know who they are? It's a big, a big risk. I have to sit with them in a table. Who knows what they think about me? One day I have children. I have to sit with them in a the table. I know. Me. What do I know the background? Could be from the good kind of the Gentiles. Could be who knows what kind. It's two different camps here. So people are thinking, listen, there's a, there's a big risk here. I don't know what's going to be. Tomorrow it's going to be a holocaust here. You know, there's a story in the holocaust. That when the Jews were standing online to the gas chambers, there was one ex-millionaire, wealthy Jew, standing online and not stopping, stopping to cry. Crying, crying, crying. So one guy said to him, why are you crying so much? Enough. That's it. We're going to die. Finish. What's the point of crying so much? Everyone already gave up. You see, life here is horrible as it is. Maybe it's better to die. So he say, you see that woman over there with the baby? He says, say, say, this is my wife. See how laughing, how she's happy with her friends standing there in the crowd? He says, yeah, say, yeah, she's not Jewish. She's a German guy. Look how happy she is that I'm standing online to the gas chambers. She turned me in. I was hiding for months. Nobody knew who I am. She brought the soldiers to catch me. You understand? He said. So he says, my father was begging me, intermarriage is not allowed. Read in the Torah. Hashem does not give permission, even if he's a righteous guy. Forget about if he's wicked. Righteous. Love Hashem. Love the Jews. Donate to Israel. Build synagogues for them. Whatever you want. It's still not allowed. Needless to say, you don't know who he is. And I didn't listen, I didn't listen, and what, what, what's happening to me? She's now staying in my house. She took the business. She took the children. He thinks that this, this is children. That's according to the other, not his children. And I'm standing here, and one hour I'll be dead. And I'm crying not for my death. I'm crying for the way I ended up, because I didn't listen when the rabbi was begging me, when my father was begging me. That's why I'm crying. This is a story that one rabbi said to a kid that was about to marry a, a non-Jewish woman, and the mother tried and tried and tried, nothing helped. So she said, Rabbi, maybe you can convince him. So he came to him, he was trying to convince him, he showed him in the Torah, nothing helps. Rabbi, two weeks from now I get married, there's nothing I can do. When the rabbi told him that story, he started to you know, shake up a little bit, the, the boy. I started to think, started to think, in the end he canceled the whole thing. So that, in that case it helped. Sometimes it doesn't help. Sometimes there's nothing to do. Sometimes people think you're a magician. The boy, three, four years, is about to marry this Christine. 
One week, the, the, the invitations are all over now. They planned the whole party. They rented the Sharaton Hotel. Now they come, Rabbi, can you do something? What, what is this? A person, if three years in a scene, what do you think? He can go like this and he's coming out of it? So what's the solution? To educate the people what's allowed, what's not allowed before they go into it. If we, were, we educate the kids how, the, how horrible is drugs, many of them will never touch it. If you show them how drug addicts ended, you show them pictures in the school how the people that inject needles, how they lay in the street, and some of them have AIDS, and they, have, they live in a shelter, and they freeze, and what they used to have, and how they ended up. You show them, or you show them how drivers that are wild on a road, how they stay in a wheelchair for the rest of their life, they cannot move, how they ended up in a hospital. When people see, oh, this is me. I can be next, I can be him in next week. Because I'm the same thing. Then there's a much bigger chance that people will not get into it. Once they're in it, now you try to get them out. What is it like? In Mexico, they had a bridge, and there was a big hole in a bridge. And every car who drives on the bridge falls into the ocean. So the chief of the city, with all his advisors, they made a committee. And they, they decided, how do we solve the problem? So one of them said, allow us to get $5 billion. We make a big hospital right there in the water. We make an island. We build a hospital. We have boats. We have doctors ready. Every car who falls, we jump. We save them. We bring them to the hospital and take care of them. <laughs> one guy says, is this a joke or what? Why don't you close the hole in the bridge? Pay $5,000, you close the hole in a bridge, you don't need a $5 billion hospital. What's going on here? This is what's happening today in the world. Children, they become 12, 13, 14, they start to have desire, boys, girls, girlfriends, hey, public school, seeding, doing, perfume, all these things. Instead of teaching them how horrible it is in the, in the eyes of God and what's the punishment that people would have for this, you know what they say? Have safe sex, be careful. It's too much danger out there. So let us educate you how you continue to make your sins, just that you try not to get killed. None of these foolish teachers or the ones who are in charge of the education system ever thought why there is so many sicknesses in this field. No other organ in the body is attacked more than the organs that involve with sex crimes, by the men and by the women. Number one cancer, by the men, prostate cancer, from all the cancers in the world. By the women, breast cancer, number one. Number two, the, you, the, the, the wounds. The two organs that involve, they are the two that have the most amount of cancer. Coincidence? Of course not. By the man, prostate cancer. What's the second one? Brain cancer. In the head, tumors in the head. Why? All the parts who participate in big sins against God, which are the worst sins in the Torah, in case you didn't know, you know, are getting affected right away. One out of eight women in the world will have or have breast cancer. Can you believe what's going on here? 60 years ago, nobody had breast cancer. Check the statistic. 67 years, nobody knew what it is. Our grandmothers? Do you think they ever heard such a thing 100 years ago, breast cancer? They didn't hear, you know what? Everyone was covered. Their breast was not all over the streets. 
That's what happened. They had dignity. Jews and non-Jews, not only Jews. Non-Jews from 100 years ago, they dare to walk naked on the street. A mother of her children, she walks with her children on the street. Her daughter is naked. The other daughter is naked. And she completely naked. And then tomorrow, tomorrow she's going to participate in a movie. And one day her children will watch it in college with their friends, how their mother are making scenes on a movie. Where did you have such things in history? You had. Don't get me wrong. In Sodom and Gomorrah you had. And in Egypt. That's why they are destroyed. Nobody left from them. Where do you have an Egyptian from the time of Pharaoh in the world that you can point at him? There are none. Do you have anyone left from the generation of Solomon and Gomorrah after God destroyed them? No. Lot came out with his two daughters and all of them got killed. None of them left. But none of the teacher will hear. Let's educate the children to wait until they get married. Let's educate them to be more modest. Let's separate between the boys and the girls. You should know that in the 70s in the United States, almost all the public schools were separate. Boys coming from one street, girls from another street, and there's a big wall in between by the goyim. Public schools. All had skirts. You know? Yeah. They used to pray. Whatever. They prayed to Jesse. Jesse. What? But it was a completely different system. Today, if the teacher would say to his children, Let's make a prayer to God to help us, whatever. The next hour is going to be fired. You brought religion into the school? By the way, it's out of the school. If he teach that we came from the monkey, he get promoted. If he teach about God, he get fired. If this is not Sodom and Gomorrah, what else it is? That's why the Arabs are gaining power. They own the world. All the oil in their hand. Oil is $102 a barrel. A year ago it was 30, now it's 102. They get billions of dollars every day. They rob the entire world. Why? By them, you think the teacher will say in a Muslim school somewhere in the world that a person is a product of the monkeys from the safari? What would happen to this Mustafa when he say we came from the monkeys? He won't finish the sentence. He'll be already hanging in the middle of Baghdad. You betrayed God like this? You're such an ungrateful person. You teach the kids that they used to be monkeys, the grandparents, or to allow all kinds of sins to do? Nobody would dare. Nobody, even the secular Muslims will not dare. There's red lines over there. You cross it, you finish. You know, people know, listen, you don't want to believe in their, in, in their roles, fine, but there's things that they will never let you do in public. You want to be in a anti-God, do it in your home, in your bedroom. Don't walk naked in the street and scream all kinds of things against God. When most of the people once are interested to keep the religion, but they don't let. Every religion, every rule that is comply with the Torah in Israel, forget the rest of the world, the liberal Jews that hate God so much and the Torah are going crazy. Now they want to hire a judge in Israel in the Supreme Court that is pro-religion and right side of the, of the politics, not a lefty, which means is not pro-Arab fighting for the survival of the Hamas. It's not one of these judges. It's a normal judge. Finally, they want to put someone who has a little brain in his head. They go crazy in Israel. You should see how they fight. If you don't believe me, I'll show you. You're not going to believe how they scream, how they, why? Somebody will be pro-Jewish? In the Supreme Court, how can we let it happen? Who fights? <laughs> you expect that the Arabs will fight. 
Jews, Yossi, Itzik, Avi, they, they fight. We're not democracy anymore. What's going to, why? He, he has different opinion than you if he's not pro-terrorist. So it's not democracy? Only the ones who always protect the terrorists are democracy? <laughs> What's going on here? We're such hypocrite people. It's hard to believe. Why? Erev Rav. The Zohar say why. The Zohar say before Mashiach come, who will control the land? The descendants of the Egyptians who came out of Egypt. They'll control everything. The media is in their hand. The army, most of it is in their hand. Now the army, in the last 20 years, slowly, slowly becoming fully religious. All the big generals are kippot srugot. The Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, the black Jews, they don't go to the army. Only the ones who are modern Orthodox, or what they call in Israel, dati leomi. Some of them dati loni, some of them dati leomi. Depends. Some of them very religious, some of them half and half. But they are very Zionist, and they believe it's a big mitzvah to be a soldier and to fight until they clean the land from the enemies of Israel. It's different kinds of opinions in Torah. Now, they're becoming the biggest general. Why? Because they have much higher values than the rest of the, of the generals. They come from yeshivot, they learn a lot of Torah, they have more manners, they have more integrity, they are more honest, they are more educated, they are more intelligent. Someone who learned Torah 15 years, as someone who went to some high school that, uh, you know, I mean, with all due respect, is not, not the same amount of learning. This guy is very sharp. He's trained to think in Gemara all his life. And this guy, besides reading newspaper, he doesn't know that much. So, you know, so now they're becoming the best. And, the, and remember, the secular commanders are nominating the religious people to take the best jobs in the army. So just yesterday, someone said, we have to stop it. The army becoming too religious is our end. <laughs> but the army of Moshe Rabbeinu was all, all religious. Not the Tilumi. Ultra, ultra orthodox, the army of Moshe Rabbeinu. And they won the wars. You understand? They think that the army is the one who winning the war. No. God is winning the war when he wants you win, when he doesn't want you lose. It doesn't matter how trained you are. Doesn't matter. In the six days war, we didn't have 1% of the advanced machines and technology that we have today. In a six day war, we beat the all Arabs in six days. Almost nobody got hurt. Almost no airplanes collapsed. Almost no tanks got burned. Almost no damage. It's like a war that nobody can understand. You know, now we have the best equipment, and the Hezbollah destroyed us in the last war. A billion-dollar boat with all the equipment, one missile, is, and Ahmed came like this, one missile, <laughs> shot, a billion-dollar damage. And guess what? The one hour that Ahmed shot on the boat, the security radar did not work. Technical problem. The most advanced and protected boat, how do you call it in English? Satil has missiles on it. You can put nuclear, nuclear missiles on this boat. There are some of these boats in different places in the world that, God forbid, if Israel would ever be attacked with an atomic bomb, those boats will retaliate and destroy any country who shot the missiles, even if Israel is destroyed. Which means, even if they shoot first, 
they'll still get a few missiles on their head to destroy them with us. That's how they plan these boats. And one Ahmed with a $5,000 missile put the boat out of commission. Why? In the entire six-day war, we didn't have a $1 billion operation. What did we have? Few tanks, few airplanes against all the Arabs. And they couldn't make a beep. Now we have the best equipment, the best computer, the best intelligence, spies all over. We couldn't find Gilad Shalit five years. When Gilad Shalit was five, five to 10 kilometers away from the center of all the army. Think about it. You have Queens and Brooklyn. Brooklyn in Israel, Queens is Gaza, or the other way around. <laughs> so now the soldier is right there. You have spies all over. You have Arabs who work for you, spies. You give them some money, and they tell you secrets. They go in Gaza, and they tell you. And nobody found him for five and a half years. Today, they announce on the news that the Israeli generals are going to finally investigate him, because he wasn't feeling good until now. How is it possible that they couldn't find him for five and a half years with all the intelligence and equipment that they have? They listen to their cell phones. They listen to their walkie-talkie. They listen, they listen, they, they check the emails. They check everything. They couldn't find one hint, one hint. Not one Arab told about them. They offer money. They offer thousands, hundreds of thousands. Not one Arab came to tell them he's right here or he's right there. They don't understand. How can it be? Why? When Hashem doesn't want, nothing helps. If he wants, you don't need two or three thousand dollars and you can find him. If he doesn't want, you bring the entire world, include United States, he won't find him. One missile, Saddam Hussein shot. He shot 39 in Israel. All of them hit Israel, not one person died. Later, one person died from heart attack. Who? Who? You know who? A person was driving on a Vespa in Bnei Brak on Shabbat with loudspeaker stereo to make music for the religious people that they cannot focus on Shabbat. And the rabbis warn him, stop it. You don't want to keep Shabbat? Stay in your place. Why you come here to, dis to disturb us? They gave him a warning once and again and again. Missile fell near him. He got a heart attack and died. Not one Jew died in Israel from 39 SCAD missiles that the size of a SCAD missile is 30 or 40 feet long and very wide, maybe the size of this entire synagogue. Did you see how in a semi-trailer they put the Iranians, they put these big scuds, they make it, it's longer than the actual track. 39 like this fell in the middle of very crowded neighborhoods, in Shkunat Atikva in Tel Aviv. Think about it, in Manhattan, the missiles like this fall without explosive, just from the fall, should have killed five, 10,000 people, without explosive. Just from falling, imagine you throw a rock like this that comes in such speed and roll. How many people can die? He knocked down a whole building, not one person got injured. One missile fell in the middle of the desert in Saudi Arabia on American base. A hundred and something died. Huh? 300. 300. It doesn't matter, 80, 90, 100, just to get the point. From all the desert, there is one camp one little camp of American soldiers. One missile, I don't even know if he aimed to that direction. What is it? What did he know, Saddam? It wasn't so advanced after all. One missile went to over there, boom, all the bases gone. Falling in the middle of the street of Israel, not one person get hurt. 
In the western wall in Sukkot, the Arabs prepare two weeks rugs size of a melon and watermelons. For two or three weeks, they fill up bar barrels like this with thousands of rocks. They waited for all the Jews to come to the Western Wall to pray in the holiday of Sukkot. 20,000 people, men, women, old people, children, crowded like sardines in a box. That's how crowded it was. In the middle of the prayer, thousands of rocks going from above the Western Wall. That's where they are, where the mask is. Throwing them in one shot. If you don't believe me, I show you the video. They film it. If they wouldn't film it, nobody would ever believe this story. Nobody. Even the religious people wouldn't believe it. And I saw it in my own eyes in a video of Rabbi Uri Zohar. He put it in his own video, in one of his lectures, showing what happened. Thousands of rocks, the size, not little rocks, big size of a melon falling. The height is like six or seven floors. Imagine you throw thousands of rocks on a street that is full of people. Every other rock should kill someone. It falls on people's head, on their shoulders, in their face. There's nowhere to run. Just from running to one little gate, there should be a thousand people dead. One stepping on the other. Not one person got injured. Not one person got any life risk. 20,000 people. Why? Two minutes before was Birkat Kohanim. 500 Kohanim said, The Ahmedim didn't realize that the Jews have Birkat Kohanim in Chol Moed. They didn't know. They did it 10 minutes earlier. Hashem Yerachem, what a holocaust it would be. But they did it five minutes after the Birkat. What do we say in Birkat Kohanim? Hashem will protect you. That's what we say. Right, let's move on. So remember, this was the things that makes a person forget. This is the story of Rabbi Natan and Rabbi Meir. Now, now we are in Itro. Itro heard the war of Amalek. And the Gemara say one more thing he heard, the acceptance of the Torah. The Jews are receiving Torah in the first two commandments. God is speaking, and people, for the first time in history, heard the voice of God. So when the Pope in the Vatican, if now they send him an email, and he opened his uh, Blackberry, probably changed already, but you see now, dear Pope, the voice of God is heard in a, in a, in a Western wall in Israel right now as we speak. What the first thing he would do? Huh? Leave everything he does. If he can run right away to Israel, he'll do it. If not, he'll turn at least the television on, no? So it all heard that the Jews receiving the Torah, the whole world was shaking. The Jews are getting, accepting the Torah. So right away he said, oh, so my way is wrong. If God's speaking to the Jews, there is a God. He's speaking to the Jews. He gave them a Torah. Why am I wasting my time on these foolish idols? Right away he dumped everything. And he came and converted. And since it was very difficult in his situation to leave the idols and his position and the money and the fame and the honor that he was getting from all the people and come and became an ordinary Jew, a convert, leave everything you have behind, all your wealth, all your, you know, everyone bow down to you and you leave everything and you just become an anonymous Jew and nobody knows who you are, you start from zero, that's a very big thing. Hashem said, you know, everything a person does, I see. What happened in the end? He became the father-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu, and there's an extra chapter in the Torah after his name. Parashat Yitro. Why his name is Yitro? Sheiter HaKadosh Baruch Hu Parashat Torah. Yitro means extra. 
Why his name is extra? Because Hashem put an extra name, extra chapter in the Torah. No, the Torah is the same Torah. But they divided it different. That is an extra name in, pushed inside. Same, the Torah was the same always, even before the world was created. You cannot change a letter. But now, instead of dividing it to X amount of parashiyot, they added one more. You understand? And it's named after him, Parashat Itro. So now, the Gemara says, what else did he hear? The Gemara says, he heard... The Gemara says he heard the, the split of the Dead Sea, that the Jews came out of Egypt, the, the, the ocean split, the Jews went through and the Egyptians drowned. The Gemara says, how do we know he heard it? It says in the book of Joshua, when Joshua came with the spies, when, when he sent, they sent spies before they came to occupy Jericho and the land in Israel, they, Rachav, Rachav was a prostitute, fancy prostitute, she have a place, people go to that place, what we call today sauna in Queens somewhere, <laughs> and you know, or, or Hamam Turkey, they have names for it, like, like uh, fancy names, you know, and everybody knows what these places are. So this is what she had, and they come, now they find, they're going to, they're searching for them, they know the spy somewhere here, so the army is searching for them all over, so they hid in her house. She could turn them in. She's not a Jew. So she said to them, I heard, we all heard, this is what she said, Shamanu, we heard what your God did to you in the exodus of Egypt. How did she hear? There was no internet. No Facebook yet. How did she hear? She got an email? Yes, an email from God. You know how they knew? Everything that happened, the whole world saw on a plasma TV. Where was the plasma TV 3000? In the sky. Everyone looked up and saw in the skies an entire movie of what happening live to the Jews without sending a track of CNN there to film. No, the whole world saw it. The bird froze. Everything froze. No, no, everyone was shocked. The Jew, God is speaking to humanity. It happened to be the Jews, but the whole world was shaking. So she said to them, Shamanu! that your God dried the Dead Sea water for you. It's not a simple thing. And the Gemara says like this, if God did such a thing to you, I want to be on your side. She was a smart woman. So she said to them, let's make a deal. I hide you here. I'll save your life. But when you come to occupy the land, don't touch me. So they told their deal, put all your relatives in the house, take a sheet from your, from your blanket, tie it to the window, all the way down to the street. Every soldier who comes here to occupy the land will know a house that has a sheet tied all the way from the window to the street, they're not allowed to enter this place. And she got saved, and guess what? Who she became? She converted and became the wife of Joshua, the most important person in the world after Moshe passed away. Amazing. Itro, the Pope, the worst guy in the world, became the father-in-law of Moshe. The second worst one, the female version of him, <laughs> Rachav, became the wife of Joshua. And people say there's discrimination. If this is discrimination, what else do you want? Everyone has a fair chance. Who told you? You don't have to die, Ahmed. You don't have to die, Chris can die Yosef. 
You can die Avram. It's up to you, it's free choice. You can die a righteous guy, fine. Better than a wicked guy, of course. But nobody holds you. You want to do the right thing, take it for eternity to the highest level. Work a little bit, sweat. You go to work for $10 an hour, it doesn't bother you, no? Your boss sends you back and forth, you walk by the oven 500 degrees making pizza. It doesn't kill you. So you put Philly in five more minutes a day and learn some interesting Torah. And you'll be a little bit more modest. And, doesn't, and do not contaminate your eyes with a dirty television and destroy your children's future. So what's the big deal? Even without afterlife, even without heaven, today it's required to be religious because if you're not religious, you cannot live. You cannot have values. cannot have marriage. You cannot raise children. You cannot have a partnership with the partner that lives immoral life without Torah, without rules. It doesn't afraid of anyone. Life, you cannot run life here anymore today. You cannot trust any person today. You know, somebody told me that he was playing my CD. His father is a big rabbi, he came from Israel. And he said, my father was very disappointed with something that you say in the lecture on the CD. He heard me listen to it in a car and I picked him up from the airport. I say, what? What was so disappointing? He said that you said that uh, the Torah said that every poor person who come and ask you to give him a loan, so you have to give him. So you say that was in the time of the Torah when people were decent and honest, that if you give 100 people a loan, at least 95 will return the loan back. But today when you give 100 loans, 90 people do not remember who you are five minutes later and don't answer your phone call, and you have to beg them to return 20% of what you gave them and they make you look bad and sometimes even call the police on you because you want your money back. I'm not so sure it's a mitzvah anymore to give the money to these people. What's wrong about it? The Torah says it's all go by chazakah, certainty. The Torah says the daughters of the Jewish nation are for sure modest. Why? Nobody could imagine that a Jewish girl would walk not modest. Even to do laundry by the lake, you never find a Jewish girl that would dare to do. She's covered 100%, but she does laundry by the lake when few Mustafa ride on their horse when they, drive over, when they ride over there. So maybe they see her by the lake, so they look at her. So that's already a disaster that some of the people who ride their donkeys on the main road next to the lake will see a Jewish girl makes laundry in a public territory and it's not modest. So she has to stay in her neighborhood. She is allowed to make a hole in the ground. She doesn't need permission from the neighbors. She can do laundry even if the neighbors don't like the hole in the middle of the neighborhood. Why? How can you imagine that a Jewish girl would go to do laundry by the lake? This is the level of the modesty 2,000 years ago. Today, when you read it, it's the biggest joke. Imagine you already in school. We have uh, eighth grade, ninth grade, and you have to come and teach it. Bnot Israel, Anugot v'chasudot v'tzadukot. Yeah, 60,000 of them in the villages with Arabs. That's what's happening. 60,000 with Arabs in the villages in Israel. Each one of them has five, seven, 10, 15, 17 kids, all of them Jewish, and all of them in a Hamas terrorist. Do you understand what's going on here? That's what the Torah says. The truth hurts so much that people get angry at the speaker. Why can't you be honest 
and hurt because of the truth, not because who said it. The truth hurts. Doesn't matter who say it. How long are we going to live in a lie and sweep it under the rug until there's no return? How long are we going to live in this lie? That's what's happening today. Go to the clubs in Manhattan and see what happened. Drugs, alcohol, prostitutions. How to believe what's going on? You come and teach the kids, oh, they're so modest. Uh, well, from what planet you came, Rabbi? So what are you going to say? No, 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 that's what the Gemara say. For me, that's, the, that's what happened. That's real. I don't care about the, the reality. The Gemara say, all of them are righteous? No. 2,000 years ago, all Jewish girls were extremely, extremely modest. That's true. In the time of the Gemara, that's how it was. Today, we have a hard work to convince them to wear scared. You have to sweat months sometimes. And then to cover the head another five years. And then not to talk to the guys on the street or in the Facebook another five years. By the time you convince her not to act not modestly, she's already 60 anyway. You know, it's a little bit too late to start making a show in Manhattan in a club. You know? So by the time you convince her to be modest, anyway, she has not that much to offer to make scenes. This is what's happening today. You got to beg people to do the elementary things that every normal person should have known. So the Gemara says, the Gemara says like this, Amar Rav Yehuda Amar Rav Besha'a She'ala Moshe Lamarom, when Hashem went up, when Moshe went up to heaven in, 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 in Mount Sinai, 49 days after the exodus of Egypt, after God said its first two commandments, the nation of Israel could not tolerate the event. It was so scary. It says in the Torah, they say, Moshe, please you go speak to God. Whatever he wants from us, we're going to do. Don't let him say another word. We are dying from fear. And Moshe said, ah, don't worry. God is not here to hurt you. It's only a test. He loves you. He wants to protect you. He wants to see if you're going to listen to his commandments. No, 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 no. You go and speak to him. This is it. You cannot hear it. Imagine you hear the voice of God. Two sentences. That's all. I am the God that took you out of Egypt. Second one, you should not have any other God but me. Not JC, not his father, not his uncle, not the soldier across the street, none of them. Just me. And when he comes to say the third commandment, they couldn't, they couldn't stand it. So Moshe went up. So the body went up to the mountain, and the soul went up to, to the sky, to the heaven, to the spiritual world. And when Moshe came up, he was where? With God. There are seven different heavens. I don't remember if I ever gave this lecture here or somewhere else. One of my lectures, I spoke about those seven heavens, their name in each layer, in each section, what's over there in this spirit. Seven spiritual worlds. Seven different spiritual worlds. So Moshe went up. When he went up to heaven, he found God making crowns to the letters of the Torah. You know, in the, in the Torah, you see crowns? Like a crown of a king, a crown. Look at the mezuzot. The letters have crowns. Filin, Sefer Torah. You always see the crowns. He said, Ribbono Shalom. Who is holding you back? He said, There's a person that will come in future generation, in the future. His name is Akiva ben Yosef. His name is Akiva, son of Yosef. He's talking about Rabbi Akiva. That is going to teach 
all the laws of my oral Torah from these crowns that I'm making right now. The crowns is not an integral part from the Torah. For if, if you have a Sefer Torah that they did not make crowns, it's kosher. The crowns is more in Kabbalah. It's big secrets, all these crowns. It takes away the Satan power. That's why it's going to Sha'atnez gets. Sha'atnez, it's Satan as, strong devil. So when you're making crowns on it, the Kabbalah, the secret, is you're lowering the power of the Sitra Achra, of the Satan. It's, it's mystical things, Bichlal. But according to the Alachah, if the mezuzah doesn't have crowns, it's kosher. If they forgot on one leather crown, cannot say it's not kosher, they fix it, that's it. But it was kosher all along. It's not as great, but it's kosher. So he says, what do you think, these crowns is only to hold the Satan down? All the secrets of the oral Torah are in these crowns. And one day, I will teach it to the world through a person called Akiva ben Yosef. No. And Moshe said to him, please show me who this person is. Show me a vision. He showed me already visions up to now, many visions. Please show me one more show. Who is this Akiva ben Yosef? He said, go back, step back. He went back 18 steps. And he started to see a video, HD, in the best quality. So he saw that Rabbi Akiva is teaching Torah in his yeshiva. And, and, Rabbi, and Moshe Rabbeinu saw it, Tashash Kocho. He felt so weak. He lost all his energy. He was very, very disappointed. Why? He did not understand almost one word of what Rabbi Akiva was teaching his student. It's like half Chinese, half Korean. Korean is good. They teach Gemara in every Korean school in Korea. You know, in South Korea, every Korean know Gemara more than the Jews in Israel. Don't believe me? Check. Every school in Korea learn Gemara. Every Ching Chang Chu and Ching Chang Li, they know Gemara. And Itzchak Cohen and Yosef Levi, many of them do not know what Gemara is. Ask them what Shulchan Aruch is. A cookbook. <laughs> cookbook. Cookbook. So, Moshe Rabbeinu, see Rabbi Akiva is teaching. I, can, I don't understand what he says. It's very deep. Very deep. And the end, the students say, how do you know Rabbi? Where did you, show us the source. Who did you learn it from? He said, this is what God told Moshe in Mount Sinai. Alachale Moshe Misinai. The part of the oral Torah. Moshe energy came back to him. Ah, oh, I'm not such a, you know, after all. He said it in my name. I don't understand what he said, but he gives me the credit. Moshe Rabbeinu was honest. He didn't have ego. He was very humble. If it would happen to us, we would run quickly from the meeting. No problem, your majesty, let me run, as long as it stays after me in history, right? Moshe said to him, Hashem, it's not fair. You have such a person in the future and you want to give the Torah by me? It's not fair. He deserves to be the one who brings the Torah. Look at his level. Plus, his Baal Tshuva. He became religious age 40. He didn't know Aleph Bet, and look what he became. 
He's much greater than me. I was born to a holy man. Moshe's father was Amram, one of the four people in history that never made a sin all his life. The Gemara say four people, Binyamin, Kilav, Amram, and Ishai. Four people. That's it. No, the father, the father is not the chief rabbi. He's one of the top people who lived in history. So, no, so why? It's not such a great thing. You're such a Moshe Rabbeinu. With a father like this, you have an advantage on the rest of the people. Rabbi Akiva, where he came from? From converts. He comes from converts. They didn't know a lot Torah, the converts. They go in. What did they know? And 40 years old, he brushed the horses. From coming from the garbage and becoming a legend is much greater than born to a father that is the president. Everybody understand that. So he said to him, he said to him, you giving the Torah by me, Hashem said to him, be quiet. This is the way, this is the level of my thinking. You, you cannot understand the way I see the whole picture. He said, Ribbono Olam, you show God, master of universe, you show me his Torah. Please show me his reward. Moshe was very clever. So if I learn his reward, I know I have 80% from him. Huh? <laughs> if you did something, you did a job, you don't know how much they're going to give you. You know, it's like, like two speakers come in a place, they say, this is a very rich guy. If you come and give a nice Dvar Torah, it gives you a lot of money. It reminds me about the Persian Jew that was a Chazan in Iran in the time of the king, the father of the Shah that died. The father, is, we're talking, I don't know, 50 years ago, something like that. So he was a Chazan in his 20s. And the Muslims heard there's one Jew, he knows how to sing. You know, the Persians are extremely talented in singing. They sing from the throat. Nobody knows how they do it. All the other ones tried to imitate them, like Bukhari and Afghani, this. They tried to imitate them, but if you know a little bit about music, you know nobody sings like the real original Persians. Jews or non-Jews, doesn't matter. Even the Muslims, they sing in such way the, the, that it's hard to believe how they do it, how they have the breath. Uh, it's hard to believe. So they want to now, making, they're making a birthday party to the king, and the king invites all the best singers to sing in his party. That's tradition over there. So they send a messenger to the Chazan, to the Jewish Chazan. True story. The Chazan lives in Israel today. The Chazan is still alive. And they come and they bring him, and they come to his father. Where is your son? He's not home. You have an official invitation from the king to sing in his birthday. The father is happy. Oh, my son's going to sing in a palace. There's a large audience. The son comes home, don't ask who sent you an invitation to sing in his birthday. The king, the shah, what date? Tisha Be'av, the ninth day of Av when Jews sit on the floor and cry for the destruction of the temple. Tisha Be'av. Yo, what are we going to do now? How are we going to go and sing to him when we have to sit on the floor and cry? It's a morning day. He comes to the rabbi, rabbi, what should I do? Not to go, the king may kill you and may take revenge against the entire Jewish community. See, the Jew didn't want to come to sing for me in my birthday. How can I be loyal to this community when they're against me, the king? They may get it in the wrong way. What am I going to tell him? I'm crying for a, for a temple that was destroyed 2,000 years ago. Put me in a mental institution. 
I won't understand what excuse I'm giving him. So not to go, I can't. To go and dance and sing Iranian music, also I can't. Which king is more important? The real king. Who cares about this king? Well, let's find a way to be good with both. So the rabbi told him, go over there and sing very sad music. Like, you know, violin, the violin is crying. You sing Persian, depressing music, ah, you know. <laughs> and we'll see what's going to be. So now, all the Muslim singers, singing, drums, singing, dancing. <laughs> and they called the Jew to sing. He started to sing, Al Narot Bavel. He sing Megillat Echad, I don't understand. In Persian accent, Al Narot Bavel. All these, they say, what is Jew come to cry in the birthday of the king? Or kill him. But they see, this is a true story. It sounds like a joke, but it happens in reality. You see that the king closed his eyes and go like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The king, when they, when they finished the song, the king got up, the shah, he came and kissed him on his head. He said, ah, for years nobody made me excited like this. Wait here. He ran into his bedroom, brings a bag full of coins of gold. Expensive treasure. You deserve this. Everyone come, make noise, jump, dee, oof, headache. No other thing. First time I really enjoy. <laughs> the Jews say, I'm still marrying my, when he said the story, I still marry my children from the bag he gave me. <laughs> Selling the gold, the gold. You know, so Moshe said to Hashem, Ribbono Shel Olam, you show me his Torah, show me his reward. So Hashem showed him how the Romans hold Rabbi Akiva, 120 years old, take brushes from metal and make lines of blood on his skin. Think about an old man, the leader of the community. They make him like the Nazis used to do. That's what they used to do, in different ways maybe. So they brush his skin, lines of blood dripping like this. And what does he do? He says, Shema Israel, Hashem Elokeinu. Like the pain is not a part of his life, Bechlad. All the students are crying around, Akiva, put an end to it. You know, one word you say, they all drop dead. You know the real clear name of Hashem. You say the name of Hashem, they all fall and died. Why? So he said to them, all my life I say, Shema Israel, you should love your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your money. First time in my life I have an opportunity to prove that I can do it, not only say it, and now I will eliminate that? No. I'm saying, Shema, let me go holy to heaven. As he was saying, Shema, his neshama came out. So Moshe Rabbeinu saw that. He said to Hashem, Zo Torah vezo schara? Imagine the guts that Moshe had. I would see that, I'll feel very bad, and I had a big dilemma and a big question what God is doing, but I wouldn't dare to make a beep. But I'm not Moshe. Moshe is uh, very close with Hashem. VIP. Special place. So Moshe said to Hashem, this is the Torah and this is the reward of the Torah? For somebody that all his life taught Torah from age 40 to 120, 80 years learned teaching Torah? Thousands of students, 24,000 students yet. It's not a joke here. It reminds me of a good joke. A Jew and an Arab are arguing who has more 
uh, smart scholars in their religion. The Arabs say we have this Mustafa, this Ahmad, the Qadi, the, 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 the Wazir, whatever. So the Jews say we have many rabbis and this. They say, you know what, let's make a deal. For every name you mention from Islam, someone who knows a lot like Quran, that is famous in history, you pull one hair from my beard. And every rabbi that I mention from the Gemara, from the Torah, from the history of the Jewish history, I pull one hair from your beard. Deal? So uh, Mustafa say, sure, deal. <laughs> so Mustafa say, okay, let me start. So okay, go ahead. He say, Atala ibn Ahmed. Pull one hair. Mustafa Abu Yusuf. Another one. <laughs> Muhammad ibn Fatma. Another one. After 20, 30 beards, the Jew, ay, 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 up, 30, it's over. It's only a joke. <laughs> so then the Jew said, okay, now it's my turn. The Jew grabbed his entire beard. Pa! Ahmed, ay! He said, this is only Rabbi Akiva and his 24,000 students. <laughs> Before I start with the rest of the rabbi. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> Gabi was worth to come just for this. You know what? I'll give you another one. I see you are getting in a good mood. <laughs> a Jew and an Arab, they are neighbors in Israel. So they have ducks. You know, the ducks move from one side of the, of the lot to the other. So one time, Itzik and Ahmed, they argue if this duck belongs to Itzik or to Ahmed. Ahmed said, I'm telling you, it's my duck. The Jew said, no, it's my duck. I'm telling you, look, it looks like his brother, right here. <laughs> I said, I tell you what, the, the Jew said, let's have a contest. You bend down, I'll come and kick you in the back as hard as I can. And then I bend down, and you come and kick me as hard as you can. The one who gets hurt worse, lose the duck. The other one who kick harder will get the duck. So the Arabs say, good idea. He thinks he's a hero. He say, you know, eat a lot of olive oil with za'atar every day. It's very strong, this uh, Ahmed. So he said, okay. So the Jews say, listen, since it's my idea, I kick first. <laughs> so the Arabs say, fine. So he goes like this. And he goes, he closes his eyes like this. No, do it already. So it is, it's like run, 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 run. Boom, he kicked him. This Ahmed is flying six feet in the air. He sees stars. After five minutes, he get up. He said, oh, wow, I didn't know you kick so hard. <laughs> so now he say, bend down, Itzik. Now it's my turn. Itzik say, take the duck. <laughs> you won. <laughs> duck, five dollars, ten dollars. Take the duck. Anyway, now we have to finish. Time is running out, so let's finish this one. So the answer of this Gemara is, the Gemara says, the Gemara is like this. When Hashem created the world, He created the world with judgment only. You make sins based on what you did, that's what you get. You made a sin, you get punished. No mercy, no nothing. Everyone gets what they, they get. Like, no mercy, that's it. No. The concept of mercy does not exist yet. Then he say that the people are such losers, nobody wants to fight against his evil inclination. Nobody wants to be righteous, really righteous, and work hard for it. 
And the world is, you know, it's very difficult for the people, the mission. So he mixed mercy. But the righteous, the high level people, he judged only with judgment. Why? Because it's a different league. And the reward of these people is much, much, much bigger than the losers who need a lot of mercy. The ones who are going to the highest level, there's no mercy over there. Every little thing you get punished right away. But when the time comes to reward you, you are rewarded as someone who lived in the highest level. It's not, not discrimination, it's justice. But other people, they cannot survive in this kind of test. They gave them a different league. You know, you have the NBA, you have the Euro League. Two different leagues. It's not exactly the same. You cannot make it here, you make it there. You're not good over there, you have the league in Gaza. Play over there basketball. Depend on your level. Over there in Gaza, you can be a star. <laughs> but in the NBA, you bring the towels. You know, you clean the floor. <laughs> so, everyone according to his, according to his level. <laughs> Nagmara say, Flemo came to Rabbi Yehuda Anasi and said to him, Rabbi, a person that had, uh, have two heads, two heads he have, like Siamic twins, which one of them he should put that feeling on? Sounds like a joke, but it's a halacha question. Did you see there's one girl in the world that has two heads or no? It's actually two, two people with one body. Did you see or no? They have it on YouTube. One head here on that shoulder, one head on the other shoulder, and they talk to each other. I need to go to the bathroom. No, I'm tired. I want to sleep. But I have to go. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you have to know when it's a joke, when it's not. No, like, let's say both of them are fine. I have to make my homework. She said, no, I want to go to a birthday party. No, I don't like this one, but I like her. She's my friend, but she's not my friend. Imagine what kind of life is this. You want to go to a place, and you have to take your roommate with you everywhere you go. You cannot avoid it. It's reality. This Gemara, it's reality. So he come to Rabbi and say, which head is going to put this feeling on? Rabbi Udan Asi, the president of Israel, he thought it's a joker. Come to make jokes with me. He said to him, or you leave now Israel and you go to the exile, or you be in Israel, but I publish that you are in a band for insulting the chief rabbi of Israel. You have no respect for the Torah. Which one of the punishments you want? You want to leave Israel and go live somewhere in Zimbabwe? Or you want to stay here and be in a band? So before he realized what to do, a person walks in. Say, Rabbi, don't ask what happened. What? My wife just gave birth with a baby and have two heads. So why are you coming to cry after it happened? You should cry before it happened. Maybe we can change it. Now it's reality already. But that's not what he told him. So he said, Rabbi, I don't know now how many coins of silver to give to the Kohen for the redemption of the firstborn, Pidiona Ben. Do I have to give him five coins of silver or ten? Is this considered two people or one? It goes by the body, it goes by the head. We know today the soul is in the head. Is it two people since they have one pair of legs? What's going on here? So he said to him, you have to give him 10. 
It's two different people. Ten. Yeah, ten people. What's the proof that it's two different people? Let's say, who has an idea how we can prove today, in scientific way, that both of them are two different souls? It's not one soul for both of them. First, the Torah said that when, when, when a person is created, there are three partners in creation, his father, his mother, and Hashem. If you look at the list of the things that God gives, one of the things is he gives the soul with the image of the face, and every soul has his own voice. Not the same voice, two people. Every person has a different face from the other, even though sometimes they're very, very similar, but there's always some kind of a difference. The same way their faces are different, their opinions and le spiritual level is different. That's why a per every individual has his own image. By the animals, all the chimpanzee, the same face. <laughs> all the donkey, the same face. All the horse, the same face. All look alike. Brown, brown, you put a hundred horses brown, you don't know the difference. A thousand uh, black bears, they all look the same. But a person, even though sometimes it's hard, like you go in China, it's very hard to know between Mr. Lee and Mr. Chang. It's very hard to know because they all look alike. But they know right away. Chinese know right away that this is, even though they look very similar one to another, they're not the same. Same thing, black people, most of them to us, to the white people, look the same because they all have short hair, you know, so it's very hard to know. But they know right away. Or I give you another example. If you go, if you have in a business, somebody oriental comes in. A white American person cannot tell the difference between Chinese, Korean, South Korea, North Korea. It's very hard to know. So don't ever make that mistake. Tell him, are you Chinese? If it's Korean, it's the, you're not going to sell now. That's it. You're done. Or you tell Chinese, are you Korean or whatever. It's like telling a Jew, are you Palestinian? <laughs> or to the, are you a Jew? <laughs> Jew can tell. They can tell. People from the same race, they can tell. But other people, it's very hard for them to tell. But still, every person has his own image. So, yeah, so how do you prove? Very simple, you hypnotize one. You hypnotize one of them. You know how to hypnotize. You tell him, look, at, stare at the wall for 10, 15 minutes until he's like dozing. And then you begin to talk to his soul. And you see, he speaks in one language. Language he doesn't know from his previous life. Then when you're done with him, you hypnotize the other one. One speak Persian, one speak uh, uh, French. Two different people. One can speak in the voice of a woman. One can speak in the voice of a man. He was a woman in his previous life. He was a man. I send emails to those who are in my email list. If you're not subscribed in my website, when you go, there's a pop-up. You subscribe. We send a lot of interesting emails. The last we sent yesterday was a story of a person named Joseph, a jet pilot from World War that crashed in the middle of the oceans and uh, in Japan, in the war against Japan, his plane crashed in the middle of the ocean in Japan. He knew, so when he was, uh, he was born, very interesting that his name, James, his name was James, and now in his new life, his name is James again. And even the faces look very similar. You see him in his previous life, and the boy, from, his, from being a kid, all day drawing airplanes, and the flag of Japan. And he's an American boy. 
You should see that clip. It's on my Facebook page. Go into my Facebook page. You can go and see it right there. I, I posted it there. As he's a kid, he described himself as a pilot in a war. So they ask him, what, what war? What, what is this? Planes? Where? In Japan. All the time he speaks about the war. And then he gave enough, enough information to know who he was. They started to check, and they found out that this, there was a, play, a pilot named James something who crashed exactly where the kid described. And he told them the entire story of the war. And they went and checked, and even brought witnesses that were with him in the same unit. Today, they're very old. He was with them, and they show his picture when he was young in his previous life. And he remembered his entire life. And sometimes people argue with me. There's no reincarnation. Wasting time. Millions of evidence. Why are you close your eyes and ignore reality? It's like trying to say there's no sun. It's really more or less the same. Any parapsychologist who would come and say there's no reincarnation is out of the collegot. Right away they dump him. You don't belong here anymore. You're primitive. The last 25 years, everybody understands it's all about reincarnation. Of course, what's the question? But anyway, let's just finish. Mamash, I have five more minutes. So it says like this. You have to give 10 coins. Hashem said to Abraham, I heard your voice and I had mercy on them, on the Jewish nation. I said, maybe I would send them four different kinds of slaveries. Four empires will take control over them. Who are they? Babel, Babylon, the Persia, Paras, then, uh, uh, then uh, uh, Greeks, Greece, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, and the Romans. Arba Malchuyot. Each one of them, it's like four different exiles. One after the other. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi say, why the nation of Israel is compared to an olive? What's the comparison between the nation of Israel to the olive tree? Sometimes it's also compared to the grape tree, to the grape. But now there's a comparison between the nation of Israel to the olive tree. The olive tree, the leaves of the olive tree do not fall in the summer. They don't fall off in the summer. And also not in the winter. Every tree has a season. Now, now in New York, millions of leaves on the floor. That's the season now. And then they grow back. The olives always have the, the, the little leaves that they have, olive leaves, small leaves, always, always on. It says like this, what the olive tree always have his leaves on, the nation of Israel never have any moments of cancellation. They're always on, which means the world is only survive for them. If they're not here, that's it, that the world doesn't have an existence. Not in this world and not in the next world. Rabbi Yochanan say another reason. Olives, what's good about olives is oil. We need it for the menorah in Bet HaMikdash. We need it for cooking. We need it for eating. Olive oil for candles on Shabbos is the most important oil and it's the most expensive oil. Very expensive if it's really pure olives and very delicious and very healthy and very good for lots of things and improve the memory. It's a great thing. It's also a medicine. 
So it's a very important thing, olive oil. But how do you get olive oil? You chop the olives, destroy them until a few drops of oil comes out. Same thing, the nation of Israel. If you don't send the going to torture them, they don't have strong connection with Hashem. They live in illusion. Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue, let's get on a cruise, the boat. But when now the Ahmedim come, rockets, nobody is in a mood <laughs> to go now on a boat. <laughs> Maybe they bomb my mansion. Everyone is worried. Everyone comes. Shema Israel, Hashem, help us. Why? Haman in Iran now, Ahmadi, is planning to throw an atomic bomb. All of a sudden, everybody realized the end is coming. Without him, nobody wants. Yeah, Abai, why should we be extremely religious now? Life is great. We don't need Hashem so much. We can manage. Ah, tragedy is on the way. People wake up. And when the Jew becomes very strong, in time of war, when he's in a hospital, when he has tragedies, then he remembers Hashem. Please help. Same thing in olive. How you get the olive? Boom, 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 olive comes out. Everything is nice, quiet, peaceful. Hashem, we love you, kiss the mezuzah, it's enough. What do you want? We kiss the mezuzah. You understand? Okay, I think that's it for today, Baruch Hashem. Uh, we are uh, in Masechet Menachot. We finish Zvachim today without realizing. We finish Orayot, short Masachtot. We finish Eduyot. And last year we were in Avodah Zarah. So we're getting close to an end. Even though I knew, I told you two weeks ago, that another five, six lectures will be done. Today I spoke a lot of things that is not necessarily from the pages of the Gemara, include the jokes and all the other things. So. Uh, just for those who want to know where we're finishing the Talmud series, I can give you an update. Uh, the, entire, uh, the entire lecture has, uh, uh, I'll tell you how many slides. It has 339 slides, and today we finished 309. Only 30 more slides. In average lecture, I finished more than 10 in the past. Ten, so maybe three more, three to four more lectures. We should be done with the series. And, I, and Baruch Hashem, many people came today. Try also next Wednesday to come. Don't find birthday parties to go. It's not important. Come next Wednesday, Bezrat Hashem, 8.30 on time. Baruch Adonai Le'olam, Amen ve'amen.